0: Listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com.
1: Would you stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word? Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 to 68. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? This is the word of the Lord.
0: I still remember saying this. Oh, that nurse is going to meet our baby. When my wife Amelia had given birth to our first two kids, uh, they both come two, maybe three weeks early, and she had tended to have pretty quick labor and deliveries. Uh, So uh, first of all, moms do not hate her. Uh, It just is what it is. So by the time we were expecting our third one, we kind of knew the drill, right? And Our due dates, her due date still a ways off, but she starts having contractions closer and closer together, like less than five minutes apart. So we're like, okay, time to head to the hospital. So we go in and they start taking the information. Uh, My wife's expecting. When she do? Three weeks. Yeah, right. Uh, So they show us to a room and we wait for 45 minutes. Meanwhile, I hear this nurse out at the desk saying, oh, they think they're having a baby tonight. I'm like, oh, oh, you don't know. So 45 minutes later, another nurse comes in and she starts assessing Amelia. And all of a sudden she gets really serious. And she's like, oh, you guys are having a baby tonight. And we're like, yeah, we told you that. And sure enough, about three or four hours later, we welcome our third child into the world. And that's where I determined, I'm going to make sure this nurse meets that baby, right? Because you think we don't know about having babies? We know about having babies. You don't know about having babies, right? Have you guys ever experienced anything like that where you were misjudged? You were treated wrongly. People made assumptions about you. People said things about you that weren't true. And, and how, how can you talk about, how could you assume that about me? How dare you think that I would be that kind of person? We get frustrated, right? There's something in us that just that bristles at that, and, and we want to defend ourselves. We want to set the record straight. We want them to know that we know, and we're right, and, and we understand. If you've ever been treated unfairly, if you've ever been wrongly used, wrongly accused, Jesus knows what that is like. The sinless Son of God was falsely accused, wrongly condemned, judged worthy of death, mistreated, and abused. And as we see what that was like for Jesus and what he experienced and how he responded and what he accomplished through that for us, it gives us hope and help. So if you haven't already, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, if you're using the Black Bibles in front of you. Uh, It's on page 990. And uh, let me just also remind those of you who are uh, worshiping with us online today, we're glad you're joining us. We're going to be sharing the Lord's Supper here in a little bit, so if you haven't already, this is a good time to grab some uh, juice and crackers, bread, whatever you have uh, for sharing the Lord's Supper later. The Apostle John tells us, by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In the season that the church has historically called Lent, leading up to Easter, we want to learn how to live in and live out the love that Jesus has shown to us so that we can show it to others, to walk in the way of the cross that Jesus has marked out for us. But we can't really follow in someone else's pattern if we don't observe them, if we don't know. What their life is like. So that's why we're taking these six Sundays leading up to Easter in this season of Lent to look at Jesus' last hours in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 26 and 27. We want to know not just what Jesus has done for us, but how he also lives in us by his Spirit to help us walk the same path of the cross. To reproduce Jesus' life in us and through us to others. We've seen Jesus in the garden praying and submitting himself to the Father's will, and last week we saw Jesus' betrayal by Judas and his arrest. And today with his commitment to the Father's will set in his mind, we're going to see how Jesus responds to this unjust trial and false accusations and abuse and how he continues to walk in the way of the cross and what that does for us and what it does through us. So we're going to look at this passage in three movements, three sections this morning. The unjust trial, the silent defendant, and the coming judge and king. So let's jump in to that together. We begin with this unjust trial, with these illegal proceedings, starting in verse 57. This trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, had to be sort of quickly pulled together because the, the backstory is they were looking for a way to accuse Jesus. And now all of a sudden at his last supper, when Jesus announces, I'm going to be detray- betrayed and handed over to death, suddenly things start picking up pace. And Judas goes to the high priest and uh, arranges to have Jesus arrested. And uh, then the, the high priest, as we saw last week, sends off this group of temple guards, probably with some Roman soldiers and a few others as well to arrest him. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Now, it was not immediately apparent to us, but for those who are familiar with the background here, there's so much wrong going on in these verses. It's hard to even know where to begin. We learn from second century Jewish writings uh, about how trials were supposed to take place uh, of everything that's wrong here. Uh, First of all, the trial was supposed to be held in the temple court, not in the home of the high priest. Uh, Second, remember, this is happening in the middle of the night, and that was actually forbidden in cases of capital crimes. You had to hold that trial during the day. And then uh, third, in case of a trial like this, you could announce an acquittal on the day of the trial, but if you were going to hand down a guilty verdict, it had to wait until the next day. So that meant you couldn't have a trial like this on the day before the Passover or a festival because you wouldn't be able to give the guilty verdict on the Sabbath, right? So they're meeting in the wrong place at the wrong time, seeking the wrong charges against the wrong person. This whole trial that Jesus goes through is full of injustice. And there's this sad note in verse 58, if you heard that, Peter was following at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. Now, Peter's whole sequence of events in this chapter leading up to his eventual denial of Jesus is is devastating, but we're going to look at that in detail next week. Not only are the proceedings illegal, but they're also filled with false witnesses and a predetermined outcome. Look in verses 59 and 60. The chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. But they didn't find any, although many false witnesses came forward. So they're looking for evidence, but they're looking for a particular kind of evidence because they want a conviction. And so they're looking for any details or facts that will get them what they want. They're not interested in actually finding out the truth and doing justice. And so they invite all these witnesses that come forward, but we're told in the other gospels that their testimony didn't agree. Reminds me of the story of the four high school students who show up late for a test and they come into class and tell the teacher, ah, you know, we're sorry, we, we had a flat tire on the way to class, and the teacher says, ah, it's, you know, I understand, that happens, no problem, just sit down and take the test, and she puts them in different corners of the room and gives them a sheet of paper with one question on it. Which tire was flat? Because <laughs> it's not so easy to get false witnesses to agree on what supposedly happened, Right? And they had to throw this trial together in a hurry. They didn't have time to coach the witnesses to to get the evidence that they wanted. So they have this parade of witnesses whose testimony doesn't even agree. And not only that, but the trial has a predetermined outcome, right? You, You heard that part. A trial is supposed to be about looking for evidence to come to the truth and render justice. This trial was about looking for whatever they could find the end of verse 59, so that they could put him to death. The ending of this trial is a foregone conclusion. They're just looking for a way to get there. And maybe you felt that way in your experience sometimes. Like people have already judged me and they're just looking for evidence to pile up against me. Well, Jesus' trial is full of illegal proceedings and false witnesses and a predetermined outcome and now distorted testimony. Look. In verse 61, the last two witnesses came forward and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Two of them come forward, which was the bare minimum, right? You weren't allowed to convict anyone except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Ideally, the more the better. So, you know, they just, they get the bare minimum to to sort of satisfy the requirements. And it's actually a serious charge because if Jesus had threatened to destroy the temple, that was serious. They, they might have something that could stick. As one commentator points out, to suggest the destruction of the temple was, quote, a threat not just to stone and to gold, but to national identity, to self-understanding, to hope, and to pride. And the Romans took threats to temples seriously, so, so this was both sacrilegious and seditious, if it's true. But the testimony, of course, is a distortion of Jesus' words. What he had actually said, John records for us in his gospel, "'Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days.'" Jesus didn't say he was going to destroy the temple, or he was even encouraging people to destroy the temple. And John points out that the temple Jesus is talking about is not Herod's temple, it's it's his body. And there's this great irony here because this unjust trial with false accusations and distorted testimony ends up producing exactly what Jesus had predicted. He will die on the cross and he will rise on the third day. Jesus is arrested like a violent criminal under cover of darkness when he had been openly teaching in the temple. It was no secret what he was saying. He's subjected to an unjust trial with illegal proceedings and false witnesses and a predetermined outcome and distorted testimony. And how does Jesus respond to all this? That's the second thing. We see this silent defender. Jesus stands silent before his accusers. He refuses to answer. Look in verse 62. The high priest stood up. And said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And this is maybe the most startling thing of all because I don't know about you, when I'm wrongly accused, my response, my reaction is not to just be silent and refuse to answer. Caiaphas is amazed, probably frustrated at Jesus' silence. And so he, he gets up to his feet and, and, and asks Jesus, what, Don't you have anything to say? Tell me about this. You might be wondering yourself, why is Jesus silent in the face of these accusations? And there are actually several reasons. First, Jesus is fulfilling Scripture. The prophet Isaiah records this about God's suffering servant who will take the weight of his people's sin on himself. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was like a lamb led to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. The scriptures tell us that the suffering servant, the Messiah, Jesus, would not answer back, would not defend himself, but would absorb the false accusations. And second, Jesus didn't want to answer because, as we've seen in Matthew's gospel and throughout all the gospels, for his whole ministry, Jesus knew that people misunderstood who he was and what he had come to do, what kind of a Messiah he was going to be. To say openly that he's the Messiah is going to lead people to to fill in all the blanks with their expectations, that this means political revolution, it means overthrowing the Romans. I mean, that's, I think, partly why Peter draws his sword in the garden, right? Like, this is it, this is the moment. Get get the weapons and and we're going to fight back and make the kingdom of God come in with power and violence. He thinks that's what Jesus has come to do. Jesus doesn't tell people that he's the Messiah because they don't mean a suffering Savior who will walk the way of the cross. It's not what they think of as a Messiah. And and Jesus doesn't defend himself finally because he has his sights set on the cross. He knows that he is fulfilling the plan of the Father laid down before the creation of the world that he would take on flesh and go to the cross as the suffering servant. The religious leaders thought that they were rigging the trial, but Jesus knew that all this was in fulfillment of the Father's plan, that even their evil intent was going to be used by God to accomplish good. And even though Jesus is silent, he's still living out his prayer, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You know, today, if someone remains silent in court, it usually suggests their guilt, right? Like, I'm going to plead the fifth so I don't incriminate myself. And that's not the case with Jesus. He stood silent because he had come to die. And finally, Caiaphas, frustrated by Jesus' silence, demands that he speak. Look in verse 63. The high priest said to him, I adjure you, kind of formal courtroom language, by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, this is the most solemn oath possible. There's nothing higher to swear on than by God himself. And Caiaphas essentially says, as the high priest, as God's representative, I charge you, I swear, under the living God to tell the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? And what's interesting is, however Jesus answers, he's going to be in trouble in one sense or another. If he agrees that he is the Messiah, the Christ, that's going to open him up to charges of plotting a rebellion against Rome. If he agrees that he is the son of God, that opens him up potentially to charges of blasphemy, of equating himself with God. And Jesus replies literally in verse 64, you have said so, but I tell you. In other words, Jesus is saying, well, it's it's true, but not in the way that you mean, and I have to explain it to you. And, and Caiaphas's question, like the rest of this trial, really raises the, the, the issue of whether he's sincere or serious at all, because it almost has this tone of like, <laughs> you, you, this condemned, helpless prisoner, this wandering rabbi, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God? And here we move from the unjust trial and the silent defendant to the reality of the coming judge and king. Because Jesus confesses his true identity and future glory. Look in verse 64. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you or I tell you the truth from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. I like what Herman Ritterboss says about this in his commentary on Matthew. Jesus declared before this court, in fact, before all of human history, that what Caiaphas has said is true. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus has kept his identity a secret except from his closest followers, again, because of people's misunderstanding. And he's warned people not to tell others who he really is, but now his hour has come in the Father's plan and Jesus openly declares, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. But he goes further. He goes on to quote, the prophet Daniel and Psalm 110, referring to himself as the coming judge and king over all the world. Because this title, Son of Man, the favorite name that Jesus uses for himself, is echoing back the prophet Daniel and this image of one like the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven and given an eternal dominion over all people. And Psalm 110 is this Psalm of David where he says, I saw Yahweh say to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make my enemies your footstool. Jesus proclaims himself to be the anointed of God, the son of man, the coming judge and king over all of the earth and he does it while under the most solemn oath that anyone could ever be asked to give. The apparently helpless victim of Injustice is revealed as the Messiah, the one equal with God who is now and will be forever enthroned at the right hand of the glory of God and who will come in power to judge and rule over all. You see, there's there's this irony here that that Matthew wants us not to miss, that the, the judges in this case are the ones who are judged. It's too much for Caiaphas, though. In verse 65, the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What other witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they all gave the answer they were planning to. He deserves death. It was unusual. In fact, not even permitted for the high priest to... Tear his robes because it was a sign of grief and outrage and lament and disbelief because he's the high priest, he's representing God to the people. Caiaphas is so outraged, I can't even believe what I'm hearing, that he tears his clothes and accuses Jesus of blasphemy, which would be serious if what Jesus said were not true. But that's the question for all of us, isn't it? If we're interested in finding out the truth, unlike Caiaphas, we have to wrestle with what Jesus says about himself here. And literally, Jesus hasn't even committed blasphemy because, again, according to the Mishnah, to commit blasphemy, you had to misuse the name of God. And Jesus hasn't done that. He simply referred to God as the Mighty One. The problem is he's acquainted himself with God. And he's worthy of death, they answer. And so they're committed to the plan they'd already outlined and will deliver their formal verdict to the Roman governor Pilate when they deliver Jesus over to him. In the meantime, Jesus is mistreated and abused. Look in verses 67 and 68. Then they spit in his face. Now, I've seen depictions of that in movies. I've, I've never had that experience myself. I, I can hardly even imagine how demeaning and humiliating that would be. And they struck him with their fists, and others slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Kind of this, you know, cruel mockery of, you know, blind man's bluff. Again, another fulfillment of God's plan Isaiah chapter 50 tells us about the servant I offered my back to those who beat me my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting not only is Jesus falsely accused the actual truth about him becomes the basis for abuse and rejection and scorn and hatred Because Jesus is innocent. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. But instead of that becoming the basis to acknowledge Him and worship Him and love Him, becomes a cause of hatred. From beginning to end, we see in Jesus' trial, injustice towards the one, the one truly innocent person. Jesus knows what it is like to be judged wrongly, to be lied about, to be mistreated, to be abused. So, what do we do with this? Let me just share a few thoughts about what this passage means for us. First of all, don't miss this. Jesus is going to return, and when he does, he is coming to judge the world in justice, with justice. The prophet Daniel shares this vision that we referred to earlier. Thrones were set in place and the Ancient of Days took his seat. And it's this picture of glory and majesty. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head was like wool and his throne was like flaming with fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out before him, and a thousand, thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. And one came like the Son of Man to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and languages and nations should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. There will be another court. There will be another day. There will be another trial. But this time the judge will judge justly, and every wrong and every sin and every injustice will be called to account. Jesus himself said in John's Gospel, The Father judges no one, but he has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son. As they honor the Father. Jesus was subjected to an unjust trial with false witnesses, distorted testimony, and a predetermined outcome. He was mistreated and accused of blasphemy, even though he had spoken the truth. Jesus was judged unjustly, but when he returns, he will judge the world with justice. And when Jesus judges, we will all be silent before him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 3, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. When Jesus judges, there will be no justifications, no alibis, no excuses, no extenuating circumstances. We, we will offer no argument of, but you don't understand. Because he sees all and he knows all and he judges justly. Jesus was silent before his accusers because he chose to be silent because he knew he was going to the cross to die. But when Jesus judges us, we will be silent before him we will have no defense or justification we will have no record to present to him that acquits us in his court but secondly Jesus took the judgment that we all deserve oh don't miss this Jesus is the one only truly innocent person that has ever lived He committed no wrong. No deceit was in his mouth. He did not sin. He obeyed perfectly. And when we are honest, when we judge ourselves rightly, we know that that's not us. We know that there's something wrong, something broken inside of us. How how I want mercy for myself that I refuse to give to others. How quick I am to judge and condemn other people and assume the worst about them. How quick I am to find fault. I am an unjust judge. We are all unjust judges. We deserve God's just judgment for our injustice. But beyond this trial, Jesus will go to the cross and receive God's just judgment that we deserve in order to acquit us, in order to make it possible for us to be forgiven, to offer his righteousness in exchange for our unrighteousness. A gift that we receive simply by faith through God's mercy to us, by saying, Jesus, I am guilty. You are the righteous judge, and and I deserve judgment, but you are merciful and kind, and you invite me to be forgiven. And to even be reconciled to you, to be called your child because of what you have done on the cross, not what I have done. All our sin and wrong will be judged. God will either lay it on us in judgment or we will come to Jesus and find it has been laid on him in a way that sets us free and gives us life and forgiveness. Don't miss that gift. Don't miss knowing and experiencing the freedom and the life and the hope that comes with that. Because, Because Jesus has taken the judgment of God for us, now then, thirdly, when we are mistreated, when we are misjudged, we don't have to retaliate. We don't have to get even, we don't have to clear our record, because we are brought into the same cross-shaped life that Jesus has walked for us. The same Peter, the one who denies Jesus, as we're going to see, ends up, of course, restored and transformed. Listen to what that Peter writes in his first letter. When we are treated unjustly, everything in us screams for justice and judgment and revenge. We're called to follow Christ's example. More than that, we're empowered now to follow Christ's example. When we're treated unjustly, we can respond as Jesus did. We don't have to retaliate. We don't have to justify ourselves. We can trust God because None of us likes being lied about. None of us likes being misquoted. None of us likes being abused, mistreated, lied about. But Jesus knows what that is like. And and he's not just a a model to inspire us. He now comes to live in us by his Holy Spirit to help us walk the same cross-shaped path. And Jesus was able to do that because he was secure, grounded in the Father's love and knowledge of him. When I want to strike back and defend myself, it's often because I feel like I need to clear my name, right? Like I want people to judge me in the best light. I want to put evidence forward. I want them to think well of me. I want to have a record that I can point to. And Jesus is saying, Oh, Drop the record and take mine instead. Don't you see when when you are secure and grounded in the Father's love, I don't need to have a record to boast in. I don't need to defend myself. I don't need to be right. I don't need to win. When the Father's love goes deep into my heart, that's all the record that I need. Oh, and that is good news. Because the Spirit also helps us stop our judgment of others. We all struggle to sow the same kindness and patience and understanding to other people that we give to ourselves or, or that we want for ourselves, right? But knowing that Jesus is the one righteous judge helps us entrust ourselves, helps us entrust those people into his perfect judgment. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to justify ourselves because Jesus judges justly. He knows and he helps us in our unjust suffering. You know, I never found that nurse after the fact, right? But Jesus also helped me realize I really didn't need to find her. It didn't matter what she thought about us or what we knew or whether she was right or anything. Jesus was judged unjustly. When he returns, he will Judge with righteousness. Every mouth will be silenced before him. Caiaphas will be there. Pilate will be there. Herod will be there. Judas will be there. You and I will be there. But for those who, is in, who are in Christ, the judge is our friend, our brother, our Savior. The one who loves us. The one who offers us his record of righteousness. Righteousness so that we would be saved now, have no fear of his judgment, but only longing and hope and anticipation and live in his cross-shaped love now. Let me pray for us. Oh, Heavenly Father, as as we see the abuse, the lies, the injustice that Jesus suffered at the hands of his enemies, to pay the price for my sin. Pray that you would fill me, fill us again with awe and wonder and thanksgiving and praise for who Jesus is and all that he has done. Oh, help us to follow in his gracious footsteps in the path of the cross to know that the final judgment is your responsibility. Help me to stand firm in the truth of the gospel, and the love that you have for me in Jesus. And we pray also that you would open the eyes of many who do not see Jesus for who he truly is. We ask it in his name. Amen.